Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, March the 26th, 2023, the last Sunday in March. Uh, but we haven't, for better or worse, heard the last of a certain Donald Trump. He's back in the news, speaking at Waco, Texas, of all places, about God and guns, highly apocalyptic, um, vilifying his prosecutors, according to the Wall Street Journal, one of the Murdoch newspapers, which seem to have fallen out of love with the former president of the United States. Uh, the New York Times, which was never very keen on him, um, asks what we learned from Trump's rally, suggests he's stuck in the past, but maybe not so much stuck in the past, stuck with his followers. We have a classic narrative of the people who followed. Now he's following. David French had a really interesting piece, New York Times today, about uh, how Trump's movement now commands him. French was on the show a couple of years ago talking about the value of the American experiment of democracy in America. Uh, he had a book out, Divided We Fall, America's Succession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Maybe the succession these days are some Americans, maybe up to 40 or 50 percent of Americans that want to succeed from democracy itself. That's what Trump, uh, that's what um, French seems to suggest in his New York Times op-ed, um, that the mob is now controlling everything. He talks about uh, the aging rock star, Ted Nugent, who warmed the crowd up um, with nonsense like, I want my money back. I didn't authorize any money to Ukraine to some homosexual weirdo. Um, and French talks about um, how Trump now is channeling what a lot of Americans feel. In other words, uh, in a Frankenstein kind of trope now, uh, the mob is in charge of America, or at least mob is in charge of Trump himself. Uh, what, uh, what David French calls the coddled populist mob. What we have, in a sense, is populism unmoored. One man who's done a lot of thinking about populism in and out of America is my guest today, Samuel Isacharov. Um, he is a professor, distinguished professor of law at, NY, uh, at uh, New York University, author of a book from a few years ago, Fragile Democracies, Contested Power in the Era of Constitutional Courts. And there's a new book out uh, this week, Democracy Unmoored, Populism and the Corruption of Popular Sovereignty. He's joining us from New York City. Uh, Sam, what does the latest, uh, I don't know what you would call it, soap opera, uh, farce at Waco, te Texas, tell us about your thesis in Democracy Unmoored? Well, the basic thesis is that there's a big part of the population that feels that they've been left behind. Uh, they've not done well economically in the last 30 years. They see their communities uh, changed by people who speak different languages, have different values. Um, they don't know if their kids are going to be able to get ahead the way they once were able to. And they are angry, disengaged, um, 
And the, the argument I make is with some justification that the uh, great democracies of the 19th and 20th century have not taken care of their people. Their jobs are not there. The sense of belonging is not there. And there's this weird perception that nobody can get things done for them. And so it, not just in the United States, but in the United States, as your uh, introductory comments uh, indicated, we see it uh, every day now. They rally around a figure, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's uh, Modi in, in India or Orban in Hungary, uh, who promises deliverance against the others. Uh, so in the name of the people, we are the ones who will deliver honesty and truth for you. Um, and unfortunately, it's threatening uh, the institutions of our democracy in the United States, but it's also threatening almost every democracy around the world. And that's the main thesis of the book. You warned about this. You co-authored uh, a piece uh, in The Hill back in uh, 2021 uh, that fair elections and a strong economy are both at risk. Um, I'm guessing you probably share some of the thesis of Martin Wolf, who, who has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Martin's an old friend. He was on the show. Is the crisis, Sam, as much of capitalism as it is of democracy in your mind? Well, it's partially a crisis of capitalism in the sense that we've had a transformation of the world economy in the last uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, the previously very poor parts of the world are doing significantly better. And the advanced countries, which uh, enjoyed the largesse of, uh, of the old international system, have not fared as well, or at least their working classes have not fared as well. And they have not done a good job of protecting them on the downside or against uh, the reallocation of wealth worldwide. So in the last 20, 30 years, we've lifted uh, more than a billion people out of poverty. Humanity has never done such an extraordinary job. At the same time, the standard of living and the uh, real wages of that 65th percentile of the world population income, which is basically the working classes of the US, Britain, Germany, France, they have not done well. They have actually gone backwards. Uh, so I do share that thesis. But the main argument that uh, uh, that I made in the piece with uh, uh, Robert Rubin, the former Secretary of the Treasury, was that we have uh, relied upon strong institutions to buttress our democracy. So the, the imagery, the metaphor of democracy unmoored is what happens when you just have elections with no institutions that are holding things in place where you don't have political parties to channel discontent and to be able to negotiate social welfare outcomes. Uh, that's the main argument of the, of the book. And without these institutions, what you see is dysfunctional legislatures all around the democratic world. You see a lot of what I have termed executive unilateralism, that is the strong man who says, I don't need rules, I don't need to follow things, I will get things done, only I can deliver. And certainly we saw that in Donald Trump and we saw the return of the rhetoric uh, now dressed up in a more violent form in the Waco rally, but we've seen this uh, time and again, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in Hungary, whether it's in Poland uh, or India. Yeah, and I want to talk more. We, we've done shows on Brazil and India and Poland and Hungary, Turkey, lots of, uh, lots of international dimension to this. 
Um, uh, your background is from Latin America. You were born in Argentina. You know the country inside out. You go there a lot. We did a show recently with my old friend, Moises Naim. I'm sure you, you know him. Or you're certainly yeah. familiar with his work. The former uh, finance minister, I think, of Venezuela, who's become a very profound analyst of the crisis of democracy. He wrote a book few years ago called The End of Power, and then he followed it up with The Revenge of Power. It seems to me as if Moises Naim and you, you seem to share a thesis, and he suggests, he may not say this formally, but reading between the lines, particularly given his background in Venezuela, he seems to suggest that the world is becoming more like Venezuela in these various crises of institutions. Would you agree with him? Uh, yes, more so than he knows. Uh, he hasn't seen my book yet, but uh, in my book, um, I refer to uh, the populist uh, way of taking power and, and exercising power in particular as the Chavez playbook, that uh, the forms of what are called, what I call intralegal abuse and, and intralegal repression were really honed by uh, Hugo Chavez when he was in power. Yeah, and uh, Moises is extremely familiar with that playbook, which he, yes. like you, universalizes and suggests that, that Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi and, and uh, um, many others around the world seem to have picked up and learned. That's exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, when, when we think about repression and autocratic impulses in the state, if we go back to the 20th century, particularly in my home country of Argentina, Venezuela, you think of the military coming out, the tanks in the street, uh, machine guns, detention centers, and now it takes place by what I call intralegal abuse. I was in Caracas uh, 15 years ago or so, and I had a meeting with the heads of all the uh, major newspapers and television chains that were opposed to uh, Chavez. And I asked them, what's the biggest threat to you? How are you, how are you feeling the weight of the government? And they told me things like, they had hundreds or thousands of defamation suits filed against them. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal. That's not like getting being disappeared in Argentina. But it means that if you're on the wrong side of the government, every legal form that seems like normal legality is all of a sudden being uh, marshaled and channeled into a more and more oppressive regime. I, ironically, uh, Sam, though, this would if we had Donald Trump on the show, not that I would invite him and I'm sure he wouldn't come on even if I did. He might suggest that that's exactly the policy of the state towards him. All these different legal suits designed to undermine him and eventually send him to jail. How would you respond to that? Well, I think oddly Trump is onto something here. Uh, if we are going to prosecute an ex-president, it better be on pretty clear legal rounds grounds, and it better not be at the hands of the incoming president. I describe democracies that prosecute their former heads of state at the behest of the next head of state as ex-democracies, because the key to democracy is the rotation in office, the idea that I can win today, but I may lose tomorrow, and if I lose tomorrow, I can come back and maybe win four years down the road. Um, what is important, and this is the corruption part of the title of my book, um, is that ordinary mechanisms of law be used. And if, in fact, 
Uh, Trump interfered with an election in Georgia and tried to pressure election officials into illegal conduct. That's an ordinary crime. That's not something special because he's president. If he uh, and his family foundation engaged in tax fraud, that's fine. That Let that be prosecuted on an ordinary basis. Just make sure that it's something for which Ordinary people would have been prosecuted also. And I am not yet convinced by the case, if there is one, uh, that the district attorney in New York is going to bring. But I am far more convinced by the uh, cases brought, for example, in Georgia. Yeah, we had Kevin O'Brien, a former uh, deputy U.S. prosecutor on the show last week, who's very much in your camp. Ed Luce of the FT also shares this opinion. Is this collectively, you're a professor of law, Sam, is this collectively undermining the credibility of the law courts, which is also taking place simultaneously in the eyes of progressives with the behavior of the Supreme Court? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I have friends who have been subject to legal actions in Poland, in Brazil, in India, and there's no mistaking the vendetta coming directly from the heads of state there against those individuals. We're not seeing that in the United States. We're seeing, if anything, uh, the, uh, the, the left liberal side of the equation is very critical of Merrick Garland. They want him to be more aggressive in the same way that Trump wanted his Justice Department to be more aggressive. But I think that uh, so far, uh, the administration has been very careful, and rightly so, and uh, Attorney General Garland has been very careful. Uh, I don't think this is undermining uh, the rule of law in the United States. I think there's every possibility that if the, if the prosecution looks untoward in any fashion, it will be reversed, if they get a conviction at all. Last week, I also did a show with uh, Carol Graham. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. Um, she's an expert on what she calls the science of well-being. She's a bigwig at the Brookings Foundation. And she made an interesting observation in the context of what you said earlier. She said there's a very significant difference in the U.S. between white American response to what we might think of as the crisis of mobility and capitalism and African-American and Hispanic. Are you finding that across the world that minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, um, have more faith in the system than the dominant creed, the dominant race, the dominant religious group? I, I think that's a tough argument to make around the world. Uh, first of all, the populist divide is not always as ethnically or, or religiously or racially uh, drawn as it is in some countries. So for example, in Argentina, uh, the populist impulse of Peronism is not along racial lines or ethnic lines. Um, in some countries it is. Um, the optimism of the minority populations in the United States is that basically over the last two generations, their lives have gotten significantly better and the state has had a strong role in improving it. Um, I think it would be hard for Muslims in India who are on the receiving end of Modi's brand of state uh, autocratic populism. It'd be hard for these Muslims to think that the state has been a uh, beneficial influence and to feel that same kind of optimism. 
I think that what's distinctive in some countries like the United States, like in Italy, um, is the sense that uh, these folks aren't looking out for us anymore. And they used to look out for us. You know, this is the, for the United States, this is the country of the GI Bill. This is the country that lifted huge numbers of mostly white people into middle class and, uh, and higher level standards of living after World War II. Um, and we basically did that with, uh, with African-Americans only later on. So it's a much more recent memory. So are you, in a sense, sympathetic with some of the populism? We've done shows with progressives who are, um, uh, for example, Michael Lind um, and others. Thomas Frank is another, uh, I would call him a radical, but a slightly unusual one who seems to believe that, that the, the coastal elites, and I would include both you and I in those, are dismissing populism. Are you suggesting that we shouldn't? I'm suggesting we shouldn't uh, dismiss the grievance and we should not, uh, so long as uh, people like us use terms like deplorables uh, to refer to uh, white working class Americans who are fearful for how their children will do, who feel overwhelmed by a society from which they're increasingly estranged, there will be a sense of anger and resentment that is entirely appropriate. Uh, We can go back to Machiavelli who says, you know, the thing that will never be forgiven the prince, he writes, is the compromise of a man's patrimony. That is take away from them what they believe is theirs. And for people who rightly should think that this is their country and this is uh, a world that they built and that their forefathers built, Uh, It's very difficult to be estranged in this way. On the other hand, I have very little sympathy for the political agenda of populism, which is to take the maximal leader in my book, I refer to this using the uh, Spanish term, the cabillo, which is a big image in Argentina of uh, the man on horseback who will deliver, uh, who will bring deliverance uh, by the virtue of his sword. And the, uh, the one who rules by destroying everything in his way, which usually means separation of powers, rule of law, all these sorts of uh, foundations that have built our society. To go back again to the piece with Bob Rubin, the argument there was it's not just the political system that depends upon this, that kind of stability. It's the economic system. It's the capacity of the United States to be the, uh, the foundational currency for uh, international transactions. So the populists are playing with what has been built up over two centuries of democratic progress, which is stable institutions. And that part of the agenda I don't have sympathy with, but the grievances are real. Doesn't it, though, presuppose what we might think of as a an ontological universalism, the idea that everyone is agreed about what the world represents? Uh, another headline today is the one uh, about the crisis, the crisis, a really deep existential crisis of democracy in America. Benjamin Netanyahu, I would assume you would, uh, you would put in the same pot as, as, as Trump and Bolsonaro, fires a defense minister who urged delay in, in the court overhaul. In the Israeli case, it seems as if secularists and the religious right um, 
agree on absolutely nothing. They have no nothing ontologically which they share, which means that essentially they're increasingly incapable of living in the same geographical country. That's absolutely that's absolutely right. That's a good description of what's going on. Democracy is a lot like any sport that uh, you can play and you can play hard, but there has to be general agreement on the boundaries and the rules. You can't uh, play baseball and negotiate with each at bat how many balls and strikes to find them at bat. Um, Democracy, uh, Michael Ignatieff has a nice term, requires being adversaries but not enemies. There has to be a certain amount of shared common. Yeah. Michael, uh, by the way, Michael's an old friend. He, he came on the show with Ann Applebaum again. Everyone's preoccupied with this same subject. I, I'm, I'm starting to think that I'm the last guest that you haven't had on your show. And... Well, it's like a Latin American novel. It's never ending. <laughs> um, uh, yes, and we'll get to the magical realism in a minute. But uh, uh, the the um, the premise of any democratic uh, election, any choice for heads of state, is that it's a real contest. People can really make a decision, but there are boundaries on what the decision is, so it doesn't become existential. Populism comes in, and its main argument is that it's us or them. There is no compromise. You saw the rhetoric that you began the show with from Trump and Waco. This is, they're after us. There's going to be hell. It's also them, right. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's tribal. In, and But it's tribal in the um, existential sense, in the survival sense. And at that point, it's very difficult to have negotiations and it, to have peaceful transition. So for example, Trump is the first president who would not acknowledge the transition in power. He would not uh, uh, attend the inauguration of his successor. And obviously we had the January 6th events, which are, you know, I have to say from coming from Argentina, it doesn't really strike me as a coup. You know, this is amateur hour. A coup is, you have tanks in the streets, you have the military, it, people know what a coup is, but this was an attempt at defiance of the customary arrangements of American democracy. Well, it was a symbolic demonstration by people driven and defined by symbolism. Yes, and but it wasn't an organized effort to seize state power. No, there was no Lenin. <laughs> there was no Lenin. There was, mildly. No, there was no Juan Perón. There was, you know, there was no. There, there were a lot of people missing uh, on this stage. So going back to the international dimension, as I said, we've we've done all sorts of shows. We did one another, probably uh, one of your colleagues, Lilia Moritz Schwartz, uh, author of a book called Brazilian Authoritarianism. We've done stuff with uh, Moises Naim on Venezuela, stuff on Israel, stuff, a lot of stuff on uh, Viktor Orban in uh, in in uh, Hungary from the Central U European University. We have a lot of guests from there. Are all these developments, and, and obviously India and Turkey, we've also done shows on, are they all essentially the same? Well, you know, in the Tolstoy sense, uh, they're each unhappy in their own special way. Um, but uh, they have common roots. They have the root of the, uh, the weakening of democratic guardrails, as they've been termed. Uh, in some countries, like in Poland and in Hungary, uh, the, the ascent of democracy is very recent. This is all post-1989. 
developments. In other countries, India, it, as troubled as it has been, it has maintained a democratic order in a very difficult national setting since partition in the 1940s. And this is an attempt to recast the state around individual authority rather than uh, based on institutions of governance. And there is a common theme through all of this, uh, which ends up unfortunately with oftentimes the repression of, of a, the opposition. We see that in Hungary, we certainly see it in Poland. Turkey has more journalists uh, under arrest, I think at this point than any other country in the world. Um, and you're seeing it in India. I mean, we just had a development in India where the uh, head of the opposition of the Congress party was, uh, right. accused, of, yeah. was accused of defamation, sentenced to two years in a uh, quick fire trial. And the uh, most famous name, the most certainly the most famous political name in, in India, Gandhi. So this is not a, an obscure case. Oh, this is not an obscure case at all. This is a case where if it can happen to him, it can happen to every anyone. And we've seen in some countries that have gone to the comeback and we don't know how well they will survive. Certainly uh, uh, South Africa was moving heavily in this direction under President Zuma. And then the corruption scandals actually brought him down in ordinary prosecution form. And there seems to be some restabilization, whether it will work or not, we don't know. But we see this pattern around the world. So the, the answer to your basic question is, there are more similarities than dissimilarities, even though each one arises in a unique national context. So the, the role of Tolstoy, as you suggested. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about is, is very much about the Middle East. We did a show with Shadi Hamid. He has a new book out, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. Uh, Hamid argues that the West is not consistent. I mean, obviously, it's hard to generalize about the West, but at least foreign policy people and perhaps analysts of democracy uh, are not consistent when it comes to democracy. So, for example, he argues in The Problem of Democracy that the mistake that we, being the West, made was to delegitimize the Muslim Brotherhood, who were a legitimate democratic party. His argument is that we have to accept that the parties of the future, the parties of the 21st century, will be like the Muslim Brotherhood, who are intolerant and perhaps potentially authoritarian, but nonetheless should be allowed to participate in democracy. In other words, the political rules have changed, the political parties have changed, and we can't simply assume that everyone will be uh, rule-abiding rule Democrats and Republicans, traditional Republicans in the future. How would you respond to that? Well, I think this is, this is a, a problem that the entire world is facing. I'll come back to the Middle East in just a second. But he it's, would argue, sorry to jump in, he would say it's not a problem, it's just a reality, but go on. Well, I think it's more of a problem because what the political parties have done is they've channeled 
the different currents of uh, public opinion into workable forms of governance. And so the Tories and Labour have very different social bases, they have very different agendas, but they actually agree on much more than they disagree on. The Tories never tried to dismantle the welfare state that emerged from the 1920s and 30s in Britain. And if you look at France, uh, the traditional post-World War II parties, the Gaullists and the Socialists, the dominant parties between them got less than 10% of the vote for president. So it's not just that the new parties won't look like them, it's that we don't know what these new parties are and who they will be. And it may well be that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is the party that commands the most popular support. And it's very hard to sustain a democracy for very long if you don't allow uh, the majority supported party to be uh, a participant and to be in power. Um, the difficulty is, will they use that to uh, govern? And will they use that in an inclusive form to govern? And will it be bound by legal parameters? Um, and unfortunately, parties like the Muslim Brotherhood don't have a track record of that. Now, you could argue that we haven't allowed them to develop that track record. And in my book, Fragile Democracies, I ended the book quite optimistic about Erdogan in Turkey because he had actually come out of the more accommodationist wing of the, uh, the Islamicist party, the main Islamicist party there. And my view was uh, very much like what you've just described, that you couldn't maintain a, a, a democracy in Turkey that was militantly secular when the population was not. Uh, that that ultimately would fail and that Erdogan might be the, the softest landing that could be hoped for there. Unfortunately, I don't think that has proved to be the case, but uh, we have to find ways of bringing uh, a democratic form of participation and limitations on the exercise of, of power by those who don't share the full kind of John Locke uh, 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 commitments to uh, all liberal values. How do we do that? Um, you work for Obama. A lot of people who are um, on in your part of the political spectrum, I think, believe that the only way we can fix the system is is by getting people to vote or think like them. You end your book with a glimmers of hope. I hope you you don't just assume that everyone should become like us. No, that's, uh, I, I certainly hope not, uh, because uh, I have no reason to believe that anybody should be uh, like the uh, people who are comfortable all over the world, who have done very well. I mean, I'm an immigrant to the United States. This has been a very uh, rewarding life that I've been able to lead here. And uh, the, the question is, how do you provide uh, a sense of belonging and security and hope to the mass of the population so that if their political uh, views are rewarded sometimes and frustrated other times, it doesn't become a call to destroy the entire system. Uh, that's, that's the hard question. I think that the, the idea that if they only knew better, uh, they would be like us, uh, I have to reject. And you mentioned uh, Thomas Frank uh, a little bit ago. Um, my, he has a book, uh, you know, What's the Matter with Kansas? And the thesis is, uh, you know, that uh, people in Kansas don't understand their economic interests. If they understood their economic interests, they would all vote like us. Well, my view is if that's true, 
what's wrong with Cambridge, Massachusetts? How come that wealthy community constantly is voting for redistribution and other things of that sort? Why don't they vote their economic interests? And the answer, I think, is that we tend to draw too crude a picture of people with whom we disagree uh, politically. We discount the, the integrity of their religious values. We tend to discount uh, the, uh, their sense of cultural rights and wrongs, oftentimes because we don't agree with them. And, uh, but the nature of stable democracy is that we can integrate and accommodate uh, these rival positions within a common framework. That's what's up for grabs right now. And right, but what does that mean? So you you end with glimmers of hope. Let's talk about America. I know that you have a, a, a global perspective here, but we began with America, so let's end. How, how does that happen? It seems to me that it comes back to what I said about Netanyahu and the religious right in, in Israel and the secular left or the secular center. It seems to me that the people that, Trump is talking to at Waco, Texas, for example, have absolutely nothing in common ontologically, culturally, politically, economically, with particularly you and I, the elites on the coast. So how, how, how can we have a glimmer of hope? How is this going to work in terms of bolstering democracy? We may not love one another and invite us over to each other's homes, but nonetheless, we need to more democracy. As you've noted, democracy now is unmoored. Well, the glimmer of hope is uh, what happened in 2020 while I was writing this book. And what happened in 2020 was that you had, you know, under the conditions of COVID and everything else, you had a concerted attempt to, to destroy the American electoral system uh, led by Donald Trump. And the glimmer of hope is that our, that our institutions were more robust than we thought, and or than or, or they were more robust than we feared. And uh, so, for example, in Michigan, which was a decisive state uh, electorally, where there was huge pressure from the White House to uh, abandon the voting process as it had stood for hundreds of years, and to simply, by decree, uh, declare Trump to be the winner. The business community came in and said, that's not going to happen. We're afraid for undermining our institutions completely. We saw that the military did not line itself up with Donald Trump. We saw that certainly the uh, intellectual elites, the, the media and so forth did not. And so there are, we have done well as a society. This is a resilient society. Uh, I don't think that you or I could go to Waco and persuade anybody to change an iota of his or her views. But uh, the, the society, when it's strong, can accommodate a lot of fringe behavior. And it can be ugly, it can be violent, at times it can be criminal. But if the institutions hold, then the society can go on. Uh, can go on. Um, the glimmer of hope is that... Uh, a lot of important institutional actors looked at what happened in 2020, look at what's happening in Ukraine under Putin and the sort of soft accommodationism toward Putin and look and say, wait a second, we can't go there. Uh, it, that's not, uh, not only not who we are, but that will do damage to what we hope uh, are our interests. I have to admit I'm not convinced. Um, um, I mean, Trump is likely to, at least at this point, to get the nomination. 
Um, Biden is not a popular president. He's a very old man. He seems or he appears a lot older than, than Donald Trump. There's no reason why Trump won't be re-elected in 2024. Then what? Well, that's dangerous because um, one of the interesting things about these elected autocrats is that they are very dependent upon being elected. It's their legitimacy. So the BJP in India lost and left office. Orban <laughs> in Hungary lost and left office. The most dangerous period was when they came back after winning the next election. And that's when they really unfurled uh, their banners. Um, if Trump returns, this could be a very dangerous moment for American democracy, particularly if he runs on this platform of revenge uh, that we saw in Waco the other day. And finally, aren't there any long-term innovations, reforms? We've done a lot of shows on the role of technology, citizen assemblies, or ways of deepening local democracy or internationalizing democracy. We can't keep a 20th century political system in a 21st century world, Samuel, can we? No, we can't. And that's the real, that's the real challenge going forward because one of the main arguments in my book is that the success of democracy in the 19th and 20th century was based on a lot of citizen engagement through uh, civic organizations, trade unions, leading up into these mass-based political parties. And those are all failing. Uh, just to give you one statistic, after World War II, about 40% of American men belonged to some kind of civic organization like the Rotaries, the Kiwanis, the Masons. That's all gone. And so we're now they're all on Facebook and Twitter. Exactly right. And but those organizations were all participants in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party as with the trade unions. And now we are much more atomized and much more vulnerable to a Twitter led uh, inflammatory campaign, whether it's Twitter or some other platform that turns out to be the, uh, the driver this time. We don't know, obviously. So I think the key question for them for the future of democracy is what will be the social basis for democracy? And I think your question highlights what's most unknown right now. 